This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Hey, it's Anna. I want to let you know that this week's episode deals with the sudden death of a young child. Please take care while listening. I don't know what I believe about, like, the bigger picture, but I've now thought about, like, wow, did I land in this career because I needed this for my own journey, my own healing? I don't know. There's something that seems true about that. This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot, and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. After Dr. Bonnie Chen's son died last year, it changed the way she talked to her own patients about death. She's more tentative in her approach now. She wants to communicate about end of life in ways that a patient is ready to hear. So there are many visits where I don't use the word death at all. And I find now that I really do feel my role is to walk alongside someone in their serious illness. And sometimes denial is a beautiful coping mechanism. Bonnie is in her 40s and lives in Oakland, California. Most of her conversations with patients revolve around death somehow because she's a palliative care specialist. She's brought in to help patients manage serious, often untreatable illness when it's more about comfort than a cure. There's something about being able to be with people when they're getting hard news or when they're trying to figure out what's next or 
I see patients communicate with their families and them trying to love each other the best they can in the worst situation. It's like you get this window into people's lives that of course you would never have otherwise. And it's a different kind of satisfaction than being able to fix someone or cure someone. Bonnie has been a palliative care doctor for 10 years, mostly working with patients who are dealing with terminal cancer, something Bonnie's mom died from when Bonnie was 17. I think the unspoken message I took in as a teenager was that mom is sick, keep your head down, try and get your A's, don't cause a fuss. And in retrospect... Like, feeling how hard it is for me to remember my emotions from those times. I think there was some subconscious part of me that knew that palliative care filled that void for my teenage self. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to talk to you now about your son's death. Yeah. Um, he died suddenly in an accident when he was 16 months old. That's right. And this was about a year ago. Um, so I just want to go slow here. Um, when, I, when I just said that, what happened in your body today? I still feel a shudder kind of move through me. Like... Oh, like, those are facts um, that Anna just stated and, like, you know, like, cannot really be the reality of things. That's so horrifying. And then, like, kind of a active relaxing into, yeah, yeah, that's true. The spring after her son, Benji, died, Bonnie wrote an essay in the San Francisco Chronicle. Here she is reading part of it. I experienced life on the other side of the exam table in horrid, slow-motion technicolor. I sat on the other end of a 911 call. I rode in the ambulance as a caregiver, not a first responder. I waited outside the emergency room as I heard the doctor call out for vital signs and medications and most tellingly to my ears, a social worker. I experienced the silence after the gloves came off and the team walked warily out of the room. This time, I was the one to wail. Did you go to a hospital where you worked? No. So you didn't know anybody professionally? No, I didn't. Which I'm grateful for, actually. Why grateful? Why was that comforting? Because the experience is traumatic. And I wouldn't want to have to choose between doing the work that I do where I do it and also caring for myself by not exposing myself to trauma. Mm. 
Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. I was thinking it was about sort of privacy or something. Um, mm. For you, it's the physical space has so much heaviness. Yeah. I, I, um, I just want to be able to sort of um, picture how what happened after you were leaving the hospital. I also am aware that um, even like asking is like, uh, it's really uncomfortable for me um, just like, because there's something about the, the, the horror of, of that loss. Um, so, so I just want to acknowledge that. Um, were you by yourself at the hospital with Benji? No, um, after we had someone to watch our older son, my husband came, and then my sister and her husband. Um, so there were four of us there. Mm -hmm. And how long did you stay away from work? I went back in April, so I was off for nine months. And when you when you think about that those nine months, you know that's like a contained period now that you can look back on. Um, does it does it feel like it unfolded in a way where there was like a where there were distinct sort of phases? Does it feel like what what, what were those nine months like? What did you do? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I say that exact question, like, um, you know, and I say this sort of really acknowledging that it was a real privilege to be able to take nine months off work. Um, the first month was mostly like a fugue state plus planning a memorial hmm. um wait that seems <laughs> how do those two things go together <laughs> yeah well when you wake up at three in the morning every day because your body doesn't let you sleep mm -hmm. um then you do a bunch of Googling of things you'd never thought you'd look up and creating Google Docs and, yeah. But then there's still, you know, 18 hours of awake time where you have no idea how you filled the day. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have a type A doctor personality, and so I feel like there was a phase where I was trying to get an A in grief, so it was like, consuming every grief book, every child loss podcast I could find, mm -hmm. just like reading, hearing other stories, trying to like, you know, find one sentence that resonated or could explain what I was going through because it was so unlike any feeling I had ever experienced. Um, when you say get an A in grief, well, was it like to figure out how to get your arms around it and get it? 
like understand it intellectually? Like what was? I think so. And almost as if like I had control too. Like if I really like devoted myself to learning about it, like I would feel better after X amount of time, which Mm -hmm. like even saying that out loud sounds so ridiculous, but there was like a feverishness with which I was pursuing it that felt like, oh, I think I thought that somehow. And then that wasn't true. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What were you Googling at at three in the morning? Oh, like, how do I find a very small urn? And, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, um, what songs are appropriate for a a funeral for a 16-month-old? Did Google know the answer to that? (laughs) Um. We ended up, um, I didn't find it (laughs) online, but we ended up using this song called Linger that I think is an old, like, Girl Scout camp song. Oh, yeah, I know this song. I sing it to my kids. Oh, whoa. Um, (laughs) Um, I want to linger a little longer. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Did you consider not having a gathering? Um, yes and no. Really early on, my grief therapist said something like, your first task is to fully acknowledge that Benji is gone. And so I think there's a certain way in which maybe I knew that having a memorial, being with the people that knew him, was just the very beginning of that task. Coming up, Bonnie eases into life without Benji and enters the strange social space of deep grief when every encounter and moment of small talk feels risky and disjointed. I really felt like an alien, like like I was a, from another planet and I was suddenly like put in this world and like no one spoke my language, like understood like why I looked that way. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. 
After her son's sudden death, Dr. Bonnie Chen felt like she'd missed something fundamental about grief and death, despite being a doctor specializing in end-of-life care. That's something she wrote about in the San Francisco Chronicle. The thing about grief that I know now, it is so lonely, she wrote. I see you, beautiful grieving patient, and I hope to sit with you again, and this time I name myself as your companion. Bonnie wrote that more than six months after Benji's death. In the first days and weeks after he was gone, work is not something she thought a lot about. So I'd say in that period, we would just walk every day for miles. Like we live right near a bunch of redwood forests. And Mm. after we drop our older son off at school, we would just go into the forest and just walk and walk and sometimes talk, but mostly just walk and feel Mm. small and find comfort in feeling small. And how, how did the walks in the redwoods start? How did you and your husband come to come to that routine? I think we didn't know what else to do. Like we, couldn't stay in our house all day and we couldn't bear to see people Mm -hmm. and so it was like where can we go where no one else is (laughs) Um, (laughs) and yeah and yeah we're lucky they're closed there's tons of trails you said it made us feel small like can you tell me more about that like why was that comforting when you're like broken open in that way like feeling things you've never felt grief feels so singular you know and you feel so alone and I think the nature part is that when you look up at these like giant trees and you're like oh I'm tiny it's somehow like puts you in your place a little bit uh you tree have lived here for a lot longer than I've been around and will live long after I die. And remembering that you are one of many who have walked this road feels comforting. Yeah. Um, This is kind of a a broad question. And I'm, I'm curious just how you would answer it today. Um, when you think about how living in grief changed your marriage, um, what have you noticed about the way you've lived with grief and the way your husband's lived with grief? My God, we are by far closer than we've ever been. It is the most terrible, uniting experience of my life. Mm. And I don't know, like, I, I, I can't imagine getting through this without Rich also walking it too. Bonnie's husband, Rich, took two and a half months off work before going back to his job as a lawyer part-time. The first seven months Bonnie took away from work were covered by sick leave, Then two more months were partially paid through state disability. 
When Bonnie felt ready to go back to seeing patients, she started slowly. I feel really lucky that I was able to go back just starting a couple half days a week so that I could really like use it as a test. Mm -hmm. I think with a lot of people, when, when they resume working responsibilities outside the home after deep grief, I think of it as kind of, um, you know, being able to choose to focus um, and maybe even invite in distractions from your own internal monologue about grief and loss. Um, and I'm struck that with your work, you are going towards grief and loss with your patients um, in a way that when you're with them and talking about their health, like you can't look away from it. Um, did that, was that comforting or was it overwhelming to think about having to look at end of life and death um, when you went back to work, to be so close to it? I mean, that was the balance, right? Like it felt like it could go either way. Like I certainly was really worried that, you know, having to talk about death and grief would bring stuff up for me that wouldn't be appropriate in that setting where I was the doctor and not the patient. And there was something about being with my patients again, other people who were grieving that like the idea of that felt like so welcoming like, oh, I'll be with people who understand me, even though they don't know they do. Mm. Um, and then, like, you know, the other piece that's probably obvious is, like, I'm working with a group of people who are highly trained and skilled at being with people in grief. And so my colleagues have just been more than I could ask for in terms of a safe landing spot for how I'm doing on any given day. And um, like we generally will have a debrief after a family meeting. And, you know, one thing I worried about would be that like, I'd meet with a patient and I'd really be connecting with them, but I wouldn't feel like it's appropriate to disclose what, what I, what I had been through um, so how would I express empathy without making it about me? Um, and I found that um, it was actually pretty easy for me to say things like, you know, in my experience of tragedy, or I've thought a lot about loss or the bigger questions and and then say whatever I want to say. And obviously the patient won't know what I'm talking about because um, it's so oblique. But my teammate who's with me will. And then in our debrief time afterwards, like they're not shy about saying like, hey, Bonnie, do you want to talk about that moment? Like, what was that like for you? What mm. did it bring up? And, you know, and I can choose to say... <laughs> I want to talk about it or not. And when I do, like, they're just able to, to doctor me, you know? Yeah. Um, Have you ever told a patient specifically what happened in your family? You know, um, I've never told someone, but 
I had one patient that knew me, that we knew each other before I took my leave. And we had a follow-up visit a couple months ago. And I felt like we had a pretty good relationship. And so I was um, I was sort of debating whether I'd say anything because I'd been gone for nine months. And um, the first thing he said when he saw me was, oh, Dr. Chen, I read your article in The Chronicle. And I had this like wave of relief because, mm. it, you know, I didn't have to make a choice. Like, you know, we did everything we needed to do. And then like, it really led us into a whole other chain of conversation that was more existential in nature, talking about life and death and meaning. Um, and I was just like feeling very moved by the freedom it gave me um, to have that conversation. And then at the end of the visit, he looked at me and said, I love you, Dr. Chen. Oh. And I said, I love you too. And it was just this like pure, powerful moment of just like seeing and being seen that transcends, I think, like what we'd expect out of an interaction like this. Um, and so, I don't know, it's really sat with me. That's so beautiful. How old a man was he? In his uh, 60s. Hmm. Like, to say something so um, uh, seeing you without um, making you belabor your loss, like, it's just yeah. really beautiful. Um, and it was a risk for him to say it in that way in a doctor's appointment setting, you know? For sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it could have been really awkward. <laughs> but I think we were completely attuned, you know? It felt just right to me, and it felt just right to me to respond in kind. <laughs> It's now been over a year since Benji's death. And for Bonnie's family, regular routines have started to resume. My older son's back in school. Like, you start to feel all the juggle of, like, young parenthood, young, or, like, working mom life. Mm -hmm. um, and, like, who's doing pickup, drop-off, taekwondo, you know? Like, uh -huh. And, like going into the office today or not. And um, there's there's a part of me that finds that very comforting, right? Because it's like a reminder of like the rhythms of old life when like things were kind of normal. And then there's also a part of me that's like always like, oh, wait, no, like that's not your life. Like you have Benji. Do you talk to Benji? Not really. 
I think I'm just turning a corner where I'm trying to figure out my relationship to him now. Um, like for the first many months, like seeing his picture or watching a video would just be so evocative that I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And so I think now that the edge of it all is off at least a little bit and like just starting to figure out what it looks like for me to like live with him and his absence. Um, so yeah, we don't have that relationship yet. That's Bonnie Chen. She's a palliative care doctor living in Oakland, California. Her San Francisco Chronicle essay was titled, As a Doctor, I Thought I Was Familiar with Death Until It Came for My Son. There's a link to it in our show notes. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Zoe Azule and Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz. The rest of our team is Lindsay Foster Thomas and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Ellie McKay. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. The show is on Instagram at Death, Sex, Money, and I'm at Anna Sale Picks. That's P-I-C-S. And subscribe to our weekly newsletter if you haven't already. I write a weekly essay there. And as we've told you, our show is in transition here at WNYC. And we're sharing updates about the future of the show in our newsletter, along with other things the team and I are thinking about. Sign up to get it every week at deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter. Thank you to Sarah Beth Hoffman in San Francisco, California, for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. We couldn't do this without you, Sarah Beth, and all of our sustaining members. So thank you. Bonnie told me there's never really a right thing to say to someone who is grieving. But the key is to keep saying something. I think I've been most touched by people's persistence with us, you know, like, you're so out of your head. So like, you don't write back to cards. Sometimes I am on text chains where I'm like, what? Someone wrote that to me? Um, And so (laughs) I think (laughs) we've just had so many people in our lives who don't quit. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.